Hello, I'm Roddy Reed, Professor Emeritus of the University of California, San Diego. I'm the author of the short book, Confronting Political Intimidation and Public Bullying, a Citizen's Handbook for the Trump Era and Beyond. This is a TED Talk of sorts. It's titled, Fear and Loathing in the Democratic Primaries, Bullying, Gaslighting, and Wolfpack Journalism. It is an audio podcast version of a posting to my Squarespace blog called Unsafe Thoughts on the Fluidity of Politics in Dangerous Times. This latest posting was also published yesterday, March 8th, on Medium.com, and the Twitter announcement was retweeted by the journalist and author Matt Tybee. My talk today contains my thoughts on the deteriorating political climate within and without the Democratic Party and liberal and progressive circles. As with my previous podcast on Mike Bloomberg's corporate raid two weeks ago, my concern um, is about the fate of the progressive and liberal wing of the party and its allied movements and organizations, especially at the hands of resolutely hostile mainstream media organizations. So here we go. Fear and loathing in the democratic primaries, bullying, gaslighting, and wolfback journalism. Whipsaw politics. The ups and downs the democratic primaries have witnessed, among many things, first of all, the spectacle of a panicked party establishment and its allies that have been under pressure from, first of all, the faltering campaign of their preferred candidate, Joe Biden, then came the surge of Bernie Sanders' campaign, especially after the Nevada caucuses, that was based on a widening base of diverse support, including Latino and union voters and the army of Sanders supporters. Also was the aggressive candidacy of Mike Bloomberg, which was initially welcomed by some Democratic elected officials and members of the Democratic National Committee, but whose vast campaign operations $500 million on advertising alone, and resources threatened to upend the primaries by bypassing some of them, then foregoing outside donations, and finally having the, the Democratic National Committee bend existing rules to allow him, Bloomberg, to debate, and also calling on Biden, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar to withdraw before the Nevada debate a high-pressure demand by Bloomberg that spectacularly backfired. Then came the evisceration of Mike Bloomberg in the Nevada and South Carolina debates by Elizabeth Warren for his political and business record and public statements regarding women and communities of color. The rapid consolidation of senior party leader support behind Biden after Biden's 30-point win in South Carolina following important, the important endorsement of Congressman Jim Clyburn and the return of mostly older Southern Black voters as a force to be reckoned with in the Democratic Party. Also fall, quickly following upon that was the suspension of Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg's campaigns before Super Tuesday and their endorsement of Biden. Then came Biden's exceptionally strong performance on Super Tuesday itself, leaving him with a delicate lead over Sanders, and more important, with a tremendous political momentum. That was followed by the suspension of Bloomberg's campaign after his own poor performance on Super Tuesday and his endorsement of Biden. Elizabeth Warren then suspended her progressive campaign 
after, not before Super Tuesday, and as yet she is uh, to endorse any candidate. The mainstream media is targeting of political candidates. Beyond the whipsawing nature of these events, my experience as a longtime student of political intimidation and public bullying in the U.S. and Europe has taught me that this has much to do with the dominant mainstream media discourse. Political and economic establishments and their media allies push back hard when they feel challenged by progressive or liberal candidates' social or political identity. And I'm thinking, for example, of Geraldine Ferraro, Ralph Nader, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Jill Stein, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Or past record, for example, Vietnam veteran John Kerry's anti-war activism, or their platform. For example, Howard Dean's anti-war candidacy in 2004, Ralph Nader's and Jill Stein's green policies, and Bernie Sanders' economic populism. Each of these candidates experienced disrespectful treatment by the press, including in some cases by important segments of the so-called liberal media. The aggressive methods employed in these cases have generally been the same. The primary focus is on manipulating appearances and using aggressive timing. What do I mean by that? First of all, preemptive attack. In a media-saturated environment, the element of surprise is absolutely crucial, and creating a sensation or a buzz is everything. Then comes extreme content, saying the unthinkable. Then comes guilt by association, however tenuous, stigmatizing the candidate's identity, also invidious interpretations of ambiguous statements or appearances, and taking statements out of context. Perhaps the most effective method is impugning a candidate's character or motive, as opposed to questioning their record. Why is that so? Because it is quite difficult to disprove in a cynical media environment such, such allegations and these allegations quickly dominate the 24-7 news cycle before they can be stopped. All these above methods are also done via some, what I call passive-aggressive rumor-mongering, as in, I hear but I don't know. Some people say, anonymous, source, anonymous sources claim that. The point is to put the target on the defensive in a defensive reactive position with the ultimate goal of humiliating and dishonoring the target in the eyes of the public and of creating an impression of weakness or at least of potential weakness, one that may not manifest itself right now but could at any time. In the current political theater of dominance, this can be fatal. The sheer volume of lies and allegations ends up gaslighting the candidate, his or her supporters, and the general public alike. It constructs a kind of wall of common sense, a negative frame that forever casts a shadow over the target's every future statement and action. It reaches a point where no matter what the candidate says or does, she or he is perceived as, to cite present and past examples, nasty, angry, rude, a screamer, or even violent. The loss of control over one's public image is irremediable. Such is the transformative power of this kind of verbal and psychological violence.
In this scenario, and depending on one's identity, one is always out of place and all too present. Just showing up can be perceived as aggressive. So the trap has been set, and perversely, the potential for, for verbal or psychological violence has been transferred to the victim from the violent perpetrator. And as in any classic bullying scenario, should the victim respond and name the aggression for what it is, the bully answers, are you being hostile? And then freely claims victim for her or himself. Beginning about 10 years ago, I started writing on this rather extensively, and also again in my recent book on public bullying and political intimidation. Even Hillary Clinton, despite her deep ties with economic and political elites, wasn't spared in 2016 any more than she was when she first entered the White House in January 1993 as an avowed feminist. Devoted as they were to speculative hearsay and cheap cynicism, media reporting focused on the bogus Benghazi affair, her private email server, and her dysfunctional staff. In 2016, cable news organizations spent something less than 100 minutes on substantive discussion of her record and platform. The print media, including the New York Times, were scarcely better. The Politics of Destruction, Wolfpack Journalism Let's return to the present, where my focus will be primarily on the case of Bernie Sanders. Why so? Because in my view, Sanders currently has been the object of disrespectful treatment by the media pretty much unmatched by any other candidate, by virtue of his triple outsider status. In terms of first his platform, he's an anti-establishment economic populist, then his record, he's a progressive, and his identity, he's an independent long-time democratic socialist and something less openly acknowledged in public discussions, a secular Jew, who is also critical of current Israeli policies towards Palestinians. Until the beginning of the year, mainstream media, including CNN and NBC, had ignored the Sanders campaign much in the way they did during the primaries in 2016, when media observers termed this non-reporting a media blackout. And at those times when they did turn their attention to him, it was almost always negative. The peak was perhaps reached by the Washington Post when in 2016, it ran 16 negative stories in 16 hours, according to the media watch group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. This year, with the first primaries, Sanders began to come into view uh, of the media, but the coverage was uniformly negative. With his 26-point win in Nevada that made him a front-runner, there was an awkward, almost comical moment when some TV anchors treated him with a modicum of curiosity mixed with respect. After all, it's America. We admire winners. But this lasted perhaps no more than 48 hours. Even before the grace period was up, panicked pundits and anchors felt free to engage in over-the-top slandering of Sanders. You may recall MSNBC's Meet the Press anchor Chuck Todd read a right-wing blog posting characterizing Sanders supporters as quote-unquote brown, the brown shirt brigade, which earned him a public protest from the Anti-Defamation League. Chris Matthews, like in Sanders' Nevada landslide victory to the Nazi conquest of France in 1940, and he insinuated that he would be executed under a Sanders presidency. 
which among surely other but unstated reasons may have cost him his job. And Democratic political consultant James Carville, who had previously termed Sanders a communist and his supporters a cult, after the Nevada results were in, declared, the happiest person right now is Putin. These slanders all occurred on liberal MSNBC, NBC newscasts. Such statements recall the worst days of Hillary Clinton's first years in the White House, when, when right-wing rumors deemed her to be the murder of lawyer White House, um, of White House lawyer Vincent Foster, who committed suicide. And attacks not so long ago on Obama by Fox and other Murdoch media as not American and a socialist, and, and their claims that the Affordable Care Act had plans to create quote-unquote death camps. However, perhaps just as serious has been the relentless piling on in print, cable, and social media against Bernie Sanders and his campaign that have gone beyond legitimate adversarial journalism to create an unremitting negative consensus. This is what former Village Voice columnist Alexander Coburn used to call Wolfpack journalism. It has effectively erased Sanders' exceptionally consistent record on issues that liberals and progressives in their organizations presumably hold dear. Civil rights, war and peace, immigration reform, the criminal justice system, women's issues, LGBTQ issues, health care, student death, debt, and global warming. Finally, on cable television, anchors and their guests now feel free today to interrupt and talk over Sanders' national campaign co-chair Nina Turner. And one Democratic strategist, Hillary Rosen, lectured Turner, who is black, on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The case of Elizabeth Warren. It is interesting to note that Elizabeth Warren has, had similar, has a similar progressive record and is a strong pop, has a strong populist anti-Wall uh, Street stance as policymaker and now as senator and candidate. This is why Sanders actually, an activist associated with Occupy Wall Street, had initially asked her to run in 2016. She turned them down. In Warren's case, she's had to face the brunt of the reigning public misogyny hostile towards highly successful professional women, but it would appear that its expression has been more in the ballot box during the primaries than in mainstream cable TV and print media. She hasn't had to deal with quite the same level of, of uh, active hostility from the so-called liberal news outlets as Sanders, though her health care and wealth tax proposals were not fairly considered in the press. Warren has even enjoyed the endorsement of the editorial board of the New York Times and the active support of influential noblest economist and op-ed columnist Paul Krugman. This may have something to do with her insider credentials as Harvard Law professor and former Obama administration official that Sanders clearly does not possess. By contrast, and perhaps for in part these very same reasons, Paul Krugman has felt free to relentlessly mock Sanders' socialist identity and Medicare for All and anti-free market proposals. Remarkably, Krugman has been joined by New York Times op-ed writers from across the political spectrum, up to two or three a day, from Michelle Goldberg, Timothy Egan, Roger Cohen, uh, David Leonard, and Nicholas D. Kristof, to Gail Collins, Maureen Dowd, Tom Friedman, David Brooks, 
Ross Douthat, and Brett Stevens. The differential treatment of the two progressive candidates by mainstream liberal media was also made apparent in the lengthy interviews of Warren and Sanders conducted by MSNBC anchor Rachel Maddow on March 4th and 5th. There, Sanders faced a set of leading questions from a smiling but hostile host narrowly focused on the disappointing results of, Super, of the Super Tuesday primaries that was capped off with a query about his age, gender, race, and sexual orientation status. By contrast, Warren was warmly greeted by Maddow and met with genuinely broad and stimulating questions concerning the unique nature and power of her campaign and what its legacy might be, along with a long segment devoted to the Bernie bro phenomenon. The Destructive Legacy of the Cold War Era The New York Times op-ed writer's consensus has been more than matched by its news department that has published a drumbeat of news articles critical of Sanders and his followers. Rare is the in-depth feature that examines the, the reasons for his expanding diverse base, his popularity among African-American voters that even surpassed Biden's and nationwide polls prior to the South Carolina primary, his strength among working-class voters in the crucial upper Midwest, or his proven ability to attract moderate, centrist, and even conservative rural voters in a less crowded field during the 2016 primaries. It would appear that the New York Times itself has a version of internal Wolfpack journalism all its own. The negative reporting reached a high point on March 6 when the New York Times published a front-page article titled Soviet Papers Recount Ties with Sanders, and online, uh, di titled differently, as Bernie Sanders pushed for closer ties, Soviet Union spotted opportunity. These articles claimed that his bid to form a sister city relationship as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, with Yaroslavl, Russia, was a tool of Soviet propaganda. These allegations earned the paper of record a sharp rebuke from Ronald Reagan's former ambassador to the USSR for distorting history by admitting that this was actually in line with, a, with the official policy of the US government and enjoyed its full support. The days of pretending to keep in check misleading and slanderous reporting at the New York Times when a public editor like Margaret Sullivan was present are apparently gone. That position is now defunct, in fact. The liberties with which the Times News Department took with the historical record of Sanders' visit speaks volumes about the current forbidding political environment in which we live. It is hard not to think that such high-handed reporting has been enabled by the revival of old Cold War hysteria associated with the U.S. rivalry with the Communist Soviet Union by the breathless press coverage over the last three years of Trump's presumed conspiracy with Russian meddling in new and U.S. elections. As a child of the Cold War and former participant in 1960s social movements, I've watched with apprehension how liberal pundits and Democrats have started wielding once again the same old cudgel that Republicans such as Joe McCarthy routinely applied to Democrats and liberals. For example, Dr. Martin Luther King and the labor and civil rights movements. This was an attempt by the Republicans to dismantle the social and economic achievements of the New Deal. But I also have to remind myself that already back in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, the same tactics were applied 
by a good number of Democrats against progressives and the anti-Vietnam War and other social movements. Perhaps red-baiting of Bernie Sanders also shouldn't have come as a surprise, since the recent media and political frenzy around Russiagate also seems to have re-empowered members of the Democratic leadership, journalists, and pundits who are obsessed with national security and take pride in their close relationships with the Pentagon and national intelligence and law enforcement agencies, government entities that have a startling record of surveilling, discrediting, and disrupting domestic progressive political movements. The power of social media. Finally, matters are made infinitely worse by online bullying, especially via tweets and anonymous postings whose destructive capacity to provoke and spread fear are quite real. Online aggression is all the more powerful in that while the toxic content is all too easy to uh, identify and interpret, it is another thing altogether to measure its amplitude and reliably and quickly identify the pep per perpetrators who hide behind Twitter handles and make them accountable for their actions. As anxious users swimming in the gaslight internet, gaslit internet, we can always find what we fear and dread in the corners of the web, but how to interpret what we encounter is no simple task. This task is all the more urgent as progressives and liberals gra grapple with reports from among their own ranks about aggressive Bernie bros who have bullied followers of opponents, Warren supporters who have attacked indigenous critics of Warren's testing for evidence of indigenous DG DNA, and followers of Buttigieg who sent abusive emails to Russian-American New Yorker writer Masha Gessen when she voiced mild criticism of their candidate. And then there's always the threat of manipulation by provocateurs sowing division and divisiveness among Democrats that, uh, to worry about. Given the unique virulence and scope of public denigration of Bernie Sanders and his campaign, its goal would seem to want to destroy more than Sanders himself, but preferably his entire movement, which ultimately, in my view, is deemed by, to be the real threat by the Democratic Party establishment and its allies. Why is this so? The, for the deep commitments of Sanders' followers exceed his single candidacy and are devoted as much to the issues they care about and to responding to the current political emergency as to his person. These millions of followers are something party leaders can't reliably control, unlike, in their minds at least, other electoral groups they call firewalls, who votes they, they have come to take for granted. There's much more that can be said, but I will close by saying that the current political derogatory treatment of Bernie Sanders by the media and many pundits associated with the Democratic establishment approaches that of which Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom received during the last parliamentary elections in the UK that helped destroy the Labour Party campaign. Following that script, the next turn of the screw may indeed be to accuse Bernie Sanders and his followers of being anti-Semites and, and Sanders himself of being a self-hating Jew. This is already underway among Likud-identified Jewish organizations and press and it may not be long before it migrates to the mainstream media and public discourse in the United States. Thank you.